You've heard the old saying that if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. But what if the man already knows how to fish, and he wants to fish, but all he needs is the tools to fish, and maybe access to a fish market to sell what he catches? And what if by helping him with the tools he needs, he was able to feed his family, hire other people, and be discipled in the process? On this episode of the Mission Life Podcast, you'll hear from a pastor, a young entrepreneur, and a teacher who all recently returned from Liberia, West Africa. They'll share how the Lord is leading them to help villagers find the tools they need to be successful in fish or teach or farm or whatever they do like never before. That and more on this episode 15 of the Mission Life Podcast. It's really challenging the people and empowering the people. That's what makes that change, and that's how you're able to minister. It's not just providing things or you know food or clothes or donations. It's those relationships um, that are that are really key. Welcome to the Mission Life Podcast. My name is Jeff Reams, and I have the privilege of being the missions pastor for Dunwoody Baptist Church. In this role, I get to meet many amazing people doing incredible things all around the world, and I want you to hear their stories. So the people I interview either are ministry partners of Dunwoody Baptist Church or people from our church living life on mission. Today, you'll hear a fascinating story from three people who recently returned from Liberia, West Africa. Now imagine for a moment, You're in a rural African village. Rainy season has just passed, so the creeks are still high. Some roads are still washed out. The villagers greet you with drums and dancing. A special welcome ceremony is held with the chief and elders of the village. You've come a long way and invested a lot of money to get there. In fact, you spent well over a year's pay for these Liberians just for the plane ticket. You're overwhelmed by what you are seeing and experiencing. Down deep, you're wondering how to make the most of this opportunity to serve. The hospitality and attention you receive is humbling, as is the poverty and how the villagers have learned to make the most of what they have. What will you do to make the most of your time there? How do you respond to what you see? Does the poverty make you see mostly lack? Or do you see assets, things to build upon? You bring the gospel, but you also bring knowledge and skills. So how can God use what you have to make a lasting impact on the village? today? You'll hear from three people who were part of such a mission. They traveled to Liberia, West Africa, along with five others, to share the gospel, train teachers, provide health education to students, disciple believers, dedicate the Mac and Patty Hanna Library, and investigate ways to help local cocoa farmers get the most from their product. The idea is a cocoa processing facility that will be a game changer for the farmers and the villages in rural Liberia. This is only part one of this series from the Liberia team. This episode will focus on the cocoa business and how such a work fits into the mission of God. You'll first hear from Alan Tolliver, our outreach pastor, who lends pastoral leadership to our sports, fitness, preschool, and school for the arts. As we talked, I asked him about the biblical basis for starting business in another country. He had an interesting twist on a well-known parable in response. Matthew 13, it's the parable of the sower. And I'll read the text first. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake, and a large crowd gathered around him so that he got in a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And he told them many things in parables, saying, 
a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he scattered the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. And others fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And I was particularly attracted to verse 5. Some of the seed fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up because the soil was shallow. Sun came out, plants are scorched, and they die. All right. Obviously, this is a parable. It's an analogy. It's, it's, a, it's a way of presenting. It's a way of Jesus explaining that, the, that what he has to offer doesn't always take root. But that's not, that's not the disciples' fault. Okay? Sometimes you scatter seed, a few seeds land on on the sidewalk. They're not going to produce anything. But what if we had the ability to get to the rocky spaces before the seed lands and prepare the soil in such a way that it is now ready to receive the seed as it falls? All right? And that's the thing that comes to mind when I look at the work that Balama Development Alliance and Dunwoody Baptist and other churches are doing through this business and this cocoa project in, in Liberia. You go to a village and you say, I've got the good news of Jesus Christ and I want to share the gospel with you. God has a plan for you. God loves you. And the person looks you right in the eye and goes, that's great. I'm starving. No, no, I've got the bread of life. I've got the good news. I mean, you know, repent of your sins and and they're looking at you going, I'm starving. I've lost a child to malaria. We couldn't afford the medicine. Thanks. Glad to hear it. Now what? I'm still starving. And you're still headed back to America in your Columbia sports gear and your $150 hiking boots and your iPhone. And I'm still starving. And I liken that experience or that sort of understanding, that context to the rocky soil. It's not that they don't hear it. It's not that they aren't excited. It's not they're not grateful. It's not that they don't believe. The problem is that this is rocky soil sometimes. And I see the cocoa ministry as a way to soften the soil and condition it so that they are ready to not just hear and see, but to to believe and to begin to minister to others. Because you, when you are broken, destitute, starving, and barely surviving, you can't embrace Matthew 28, Great Commission either. How are you going to go, therefore, into all the world and teach the gospel? You, you, you're starving. So if we empower the community, if we give them a way to support themselves, to feed themselves, to improve their standard of living a little bit, to send their children to school, and to say, we are doing this because God is at work in your community, and he called us here. We're not here to just do charity work. We could do that in Atlanta. But God is doing something special in this community for reasons that we can't even understand. And he has called us here to bring the expertise that we have in our congregation, which is business and commerce and trade and logistics and operational experience to set something up that is sustainable and profitable that will give you the kind of income 
and therefore the kind of dignity and self-determination that you need in order to become fruitful yourself. DBC is there to soften the soil, to pick up some rocks, move some sticks out of the way so that the seed lands and sprouts and stays. Now, some might say that this project is a great example of how to earn the right to be heard. So are we doing this to get to someplace else with the villagers, or are we doing this as a demonstration that something new is happening already? In the end, it's not really about what we do when we go, but what God is doing and how we're working with the people there. I liken it to how the team dedicated the Mac and Patty Hanna Library. Something was said there that really brought this home. So I asked Alan to share about that experience. I, I went into that meeting. I don't even remember what I had jotted down, but I remember sort of like, okay, that's not going to, that doesn't, that no longer fits now that I'm listening to these people talk. And one of the village elders says, I'm going to paraphrase because it was a lot longer, but he effectively said, we know what happens when secular aid organizations come to a village. They move in, they drill wells, they build schools, and they don't want the villagers to help. They have their own way of doing things, their own method, their own approach. And so the villagers sit back and they watch busloads of white people show up and do all these things. And he said, and the people lose their desire to work. They just have to wait for the next busload of white people to come do stuff for them. And he says, I've seen this in other places where USAID and the United Nations and the U.S. Agency for International Development and other NGOs have just shown up and done stuff. You know, wells, water, roads, whatever it is. And he said, we do not want that here. And I just felt this tingling down the back of my neck like, thank you, Lord, because I, that was one of the things that I, I was anxious about. And he said, we're grateful for this library building. But we're proud that we were able to help do it. Our women carried rock. Our men mixed concrete. Our, um, uh, our workers here in the village cut timber and sawed things. And we, we bought nails and we bought screws and we built the desks and the tables and the chairs. And we built the bookshelves. We are so grateful to Dunwoody Baptist, but we wanted to contribute and be part of the project. And I thought, amen. And then he says, and for the cocoa, we don't need you to grow cocoa for us. We know how to grow cocoa. We've been doing it for generations. We have the trees. We have the land. We know how to grow cocoa. What we don't have is access to the latest pesticides. We don't have access to university research on what kinds of funguses we have and the best way to deal with them so that we can improve the yield. We don't know exactly how much fertilizer to use per tree to, you know, all of that information is stuff that we have lost because we lost a generation of teachers and leaders and business people in the Civil War. We've lost all of those people that knew all about it. We've lost the middleman market, and so we don't have an effective market. I mean, we can't count on pricing. We can't count on anybody that if we harvest the cocoa, you're on the clock before it starts to, you know, it starts to rot. So we harvest it, we process it ourselves, but then we might have it ready to be delivered to a buyer, only nobody shows up for three or four weeks. And you start to get mildew on the seeds and um, the crop quality begins to decline. And he goes, the entire market function is lost. He says, and our children 
don't, don't know what happens to cocoa when it leaves here. They know what a cocoa bean looks like. They know what chocolate is, but they don't know what happens in between. And we don't have any way to explain that because we don't know. We haven't been or seen or done, and we'd like to learn. And it, it, was, it was that conversation that led me to say in response when I, when I stood up to dedicate the library, other villages are wondering why you have a library. Other villages are wondering why BDA is building a cocoa processing facility in Banga, which is the capital town about 30 miles away, and working with you all to set up a co-op to grow cocoa. And why do you have a library full of books from America? And why do you have this nice school when almost every other village's school was shot full of holes or knocked down with mortars and grenades or whatever? Other villages are going to want to know why. And I beg you, do not under any circumstances say, Baptist gave us these things and Balama Development Alliance gave us these things. You tell them God is at work in this community and we are in his service and responding to what he's already doing. You need to be a testimony to God's, God's um, presence and, and love for this, this community and these people. Um, who are called by his name to do his work. And uh, that got a round of applause. I mean, they, they and I, I had to parse it out and go kind of slow because we didn't have great English, but um, they, that, that landed. They got that one. The thing that attracted me to the Balama Development Alliance project more than anything else was not, was because it wasn't the traditional model. It wasn't that Dunwoody Baptist sent some people to do stuff. You send a bunch of people to another country to paint a wall and play soccer, that's great, but at a cost of, you know, a grand or two per person to get there and to be there, we could have done other stuff with the money. Do you know what I mean? And when I look at what Jesse is doing in, in Balama and Banga and Bonsu, Jesse is one of them. Jesse is from the Bonsu community. He is a local. He has come to the United States, earned a doctoral degree, and gone back to change, to change the world's, uh, or to change the experience of his people. And because we've got somebody there whose own time and energy and passion and talents are on the line, you've got somebody who is absolutely committed to the success of the project. When I go and listen to Jesse and I look at what he's doing, he owns not just the project, he owns the outcome. And when he personally owns the outcome, and he considers this um, a matter of personal honor in an honor-shame society, he's all in all the time, completely sold out to this project. And that's where the, that, I think that's where the success is coming from, and I think that's where it's going to continue to come from. He's recruiting lieutenants from within the community who also have a vested interest in success. And they know this cocoa project doesn't, doesn't work out or, uh, you know, there's some fraud or some abuse or something like that. DBC doesn't send another nickel, and neither do any of the other churches. It's, and it's not just us. So if, if they know that success means accomplishing the goals we've set, hitting milestones that we've agreed on, and our support is contingent upon them continuing to do that, then everybody's interests are aligned. And the fact that Jesse has a, doc, uh, a doctoral degree of theology 
is just icing on the cake. He understands what needs to happen, but he also has his MBA, and he's a local guy from, you know, way up in the bush. So we've got an educated person who understands the Western world, understands how to work with Americans, understands how to host groups that are coming to help, understands how to get things done. It really is a great um, team. And I know from the business world, if you have to choose between a great idea with average leaders and an average idea with great leaders, you always take the second option because great leaders will always get stuff done. Ryan is a young businessman who joined the team to hear from the cocoa farmers about what they need to be successful. Linda has been to Liberia once before and is passionate about training the teachers of the Bonsu School. They both commented, however, on the impact that this cocoa project could have on the entire village and how the gospel fits into this project. Linda, what's sort of your background and, and, and what's your story with Liberia? Well, I retired from teaching in 2012 and a trip was, was planned here to go and I couldn't go because um, I was moving my son across the country, but they needed a teacher. And God really laid it on my heart that that was, I was leaving teaching as a profession, I needed to still use it. So it's really tugging on me to be to go as a teacher. So when the next opportunity came, the following February, I was really on board. I knew it was what I was supposed to do. What about you, Ryan? Well, my story's a little different than Linda's. Uh, I had actually, through Adam Newton, connected with Jesse Togbadoya, who is the director of the uh, Balama Development Alliance, and. When Adam first said, hey, you're interested on going on a trip to Liberia or or kind of introduce Liberia to me, I've been a lot of places, but it was one of those places I had to bust out the old map and say, where in the world is Liberia? Um, (laughs) So that kind of connection is uh, working a little bit with Jesse and and with BDA is what uh, really attracted me or kind of drew me Mm. to this trip. Yeah, tell us more about that. What drew you to want to be involved? I mean, I know they were looking for teachers, but you could teach a lot of places. Well, I had met Jesse years and years ago when we were members of Wayuka and uh, loved his ministry, and we supported his ministry. So I knew that he was genuine. I knew in his mission. I knew what he was about, and, and I loved the whole idea of his upbringing and his coming to our country to get an education and then being willing to sacrifice everything to go back to Liberia. So I knew about that story. And so to go and be a part of that work as a teacher um, was really a very driving force for me. What about you, Ryan? What did they have you do? What did they recruit you into? into? Yeah. Um, <laughs> a big struggle, I guess, that that I have, and I think that a lot of Christians have, is when we go on mission trips is how do you, um, how are you able to minister the people and really, you know, allow God to use you in those settings and really, you know, get the most out of your experience there because a lot of mission trips are short term, uh, you know, not a, a full long term commitment. And so you want to make sure that you use your time wisely and that God's able to use you. And so, um, one of the most unique messages that Jesse, when I first met him, that he, um, really kind of resonated is the empowerment piece and that it's it's really challenging the people and empowering the people 
that's what makes that change. And that's how you're able to minister. It's not just providing things or, you know, food or clothes or donations. It's those relationships um, that are that are really key. And so for me, you know, an opportunity to go into a country and connect with people and allow God to just work in, in maybe different ways than what people are used to, um, I thought was just amazing, uh, and especially the ministry that, that he's been a part of. So, mm-hmm. And Linda was recruited as a teacher to train teachers. What did Adam say oh, yeah. you were getting into? Uh, my background actually has been a little bit all over the place. So uh, I was in higher education for a number of years, and then actually my wife and I moved overseas uh, for, in China for about a year and a half. So we worked at an international school there and actually helped uh, help kind of kickstart and get the school off the ground. So... From that, brought us back to Georgia where um, I helped uh, facilitate a a startup restaurant uh, in Atlanta. And so my background has kind of been more the logistics and taking ideas and concepts from early stages and continuing to grow those and and see this kind of take shape. So um, the idea was... uh, a part of what this trip was, was um, doing almost a feasibility study or just looking to see if it was possible to start some sort of cocoa processing facility that would create jobs, create income, but also tie in a ministry piece to that. So um, have you know daily Bible studies and create a program to where we can take the gospel, share it within not only the, the company, but the greater community at large and kind of use that as a facilitator. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about that because there was a reason why cocoa processing facility became the business. Uh, we've helped in the past. Teams have gone and, and helped on a micro level. A family wants to start a small business. A single mom wants to sell fish by the road or something. But this is this is bigger. This is big. And so it's, it's talk big. a little bit about why Cocoa and, and the potential you see for this project. Yeah. The, the idea for Cocoa, um, they have resources available. And when you're thinking about it is you look at the the resources they have readily available and then you look at, well, what's the process? Why is this resource not being used or utilized? And it was really, they didn't have the tools and the things that they needed to kind of complete that process. And so um, right now, cocoa is, it grows all over the place, uh, out into the bush. And so what they do is they just go out, they see it on the tree, they pick it, they, um, there's a process where you actually have to ferment it. There's a, um, when you crack a, a pod open and it's kind of a, I'm going to describe this to you. It is a, it's a yellow pod. And when you crack it open, there are probably 30 to 40 different beans or, or kind of shells inside of what they look like. And it has a white, um, almost film around it. And so it, it takes a while for that film to kind of evaporate or dissolve off of those beans. And then you're left with what you would see as a cocoa bean. Now, that wet cocoa bean still has to be dried. So what they do is they lay it out on a tarp out in the sun to allow that to dry. But there is very little quality control. And so if it rains or you know there's moisture in the air, those cocoa beans can start to mold. And then their product is ruined or it's not very good quality. And so they're really struggling with some of these basic things of you know how do we, how do we take what we have and create a... a a usable product from that. And so uh, about 90% of the quality control is in that drying process. I want to pause Ryan right there. As he was talking about how the farmers are struggling to maintain good quality in their cocoa, it reminded me of a story that Alan shared. He and some others visited the farm of one of the growers, and this is what he saw. 
Jeff, we we visited the farm of um, one of Jesse's lieutenants, who is the I think he's the oldest son of the fourth wife. So there was a village chieftain or a, a village elder who had four wives, and this this guy named Harrison is the son of the fourth wife. So in the grand scheme of pecking order, he's pretty far down the ladder because it's the children of the first wife, then the children of the second wife, then the children of the third wife. But the point is, um, he stood to inherit nothing, and he um, had lots of older brothers who were way further up the sort of chain of, you know, the chain of the society. But he took us to the family farm. We saw his father's tomb. That's how you know when somebody's important is um, there's a raised concrete sarcophagus um, at the edge of his farm, you know, along the road. So you, everybody coming to and from would see this, uh, this sarcophagus right there. And that was Harrison's father's grave. And he took us on a tour of the farm. And Jeff, we're walking along, and there's cocoa on the ground, rotting. The pod filled up with uh, cocoa beans, matured, turned yellow, you know, turned kind of a golden yellow color to tell you it's ready for harvest. And it sat there uh, on the on the tree long enough for the stem to begin to develop mold. And then you can see the mold moving along the pod, and then the pod falls to the ground, and then it just rots there because there's nobody to buy it. And what little cocoa processing has done that we have pictures of, it's exactly what you'd expect in the bush. There's a one of those blue tarps from Harbor Freight laying on the ground, you know, sort of a 10 by 12 tarp. And there's about a bushel or a bushel and a half of cocoa beans spread out in the sun. And every hour or two, one of the little boy's job is to take a wooden stick and kind of stir all the seeds around to keep them turned over and moving and sort of drying and, you know, evenly. But there's a chicken walking around on the cocoa beans and the dog wanders across them. And, uh, you know, a little boy who's been walking in some mud, he walks across the edge of the tarp and then his mother swats him. And But they're out there in the sun and the chicken's walking over them. And, and there's a goat that may have wandered across there earlier. And that's the reason that they can't earn a premium. And they're not doing a whole lot of it because they can't rely on somebody to buy it when it's ready. And they don't have giant storage facilities. So if you have 10 or 15 bushels of cocoa beans and they're all dry and ready to go to market and nobody shows up to buy them, they just rot. You've wasted a week's worth of work and there's no consistency to any of this. So, what we looked at doing is going in country and saying, look, we're going to set up a co-op to where we negotiate a fair price with all the farmers. We have a partnership with these farmers in the local communities. And what they do is we buy that wet cocoa from them. They don't have to worry about that drying process and taking the time to dry it. And is the quality going to be there? We take it. We have a facility, a centralized uh, facility that we're actually looking in the, um, the Bonga uh, city. It's kind of a centralized location we ferment and dry that cocoa package it and then we um, use that both in country and exporting that and so the farmers get a much fairer price again they don't have to worry about that quality control piece it provides income and a sustainable ongoing income basis for them and so um, we just saw that as a as a huge opportunity to not only alleviate poverty, but again, for us to come in and incorporate that ministry piece. That's so huge. If you start providing something, you know, if, if somebody 
gave me a job and I was able to provide for my family, man, that relationship and that connection you've made, I'm going to listen to what that person has to say. Um, and, and I think that's a unique way that God can work in some of these areas. But so far in this process, as I've heard you and Adam talk about it, is God has set up some appointments already mm-hmm. uh, that are, that are, are showing you that this could actually take off. This, this could be something big. This is not something that is going to totally depend on our pushing. So. Well, it was really crazy. Um, when we were in country, we had an opportunity to meet with the president of the Liberian Cocoa Corporation. And we were, you know, anytime you're coming in as competition, <laughs> essentially, that's what we were looking at doing. You know, the, the, the other party doesn't necessarily want to help you out. And we couldn't figure out why he was so willing to provide us with advice and, and kind of his experiences and show us his facility. And so um, we met with him at the beginning of the trip. And then at the end of the trip, we kind of revisited that, uh, that conversation, sat back down with him and finally realized that what he was looking at doing is getting out of the actual working directly with the farmers. He's actually looking at taking his company and growing it to the refining process. So taking those cocoa beans, turning it into cocoa powder, the you know chocolate liqueur, or cocoa butter, you know, that, that kind of next step phase. And so he needed suppliers in order to take his business to that next level. And so just, you know, those things, it, there's no way that we could have ever anticipated that that was going to happen. It was just a complete God thing that, uh, well, you the know, timing on that. Oh, too. And, and that's where he was in his business. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So just little things like that kind of reassure you and, uh, and reaffirm that, um, that God has a work here. So as you did the research, I didn't realize how much of the world's chocolate, you know, Swiss chocolates might actually be African <laughs> as far as we know. Uh, yeah comes from West Africa. Was this an industry in Liberia before the war? And it kind of... Yeah. So Liberia was one of the top cocoa producers in the world before the Civil War. Uh, About just over 70% of the world's cocoa comes from West Africa. So a huge percentage. And, uh, you know, during the Civil War, other neighboring countries, Ivory Coast, Ghana, you know, stepped in and really took over that that market share. And, um, and Liberia, again, they've struggled just because they're trying to rebuild their, their country, their economy, their infrastructure, everything. And so, uh, this is, if they, if they were top in the world at one point, there's no reason why they can't be again. So it's, you know, again, it's just coming in and providing those tools to take it to that next level. And, uh, you know, you mentioned it before, but a key component of this is the discipleship piece. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not just in it to start a business, uh, but building that culture and helping them, you know, connect it. So any thoughts on that? Any conversations that have been had about that? Yeah, there's a couple of things that we're looking at doing. So our initial thoughts, one is is we wanted to um, we wanted to take almost a Chick-fil-A model. Uh, Chick-fil-A does a great job of incorporating the ministry or, or kind of biblical principles and aspects into their company. And so um, we've, we're actually in the process of reaching out uh, to some of the kind of executives who, who run that, that uh, area of their company just to see what they do and get some feedback. Um, but one is to do Bible studies. We want to incorporate daily Bible studies into every single day. You start your day off right, you know, you have a, a scripture reading, you're into the word, there's prayer before you start each day. We also want to try to teach um, ethical business practices. I mean, some of these little things that you see, it's what does God teach us to do um, when we're running a company or as employees? Uh, we also want to incorporate families into it because we feel like not only are the the employees 
a strong part of this. It's their families and their communities and getting everybody involved. And so we want to have uh, some events and some things that people can come to and, um, and that, that outreach and just relationship piece. And then another portion of this, um, all of the, the sales essentially from this cocoa processing facility, there is a percentage that we want to take and put back into the community. So from healthcare to educational programs to, um, you know, different ministries, if it's providing, uh, we, we actually took over these, their lamps or kind of lights that they can use called Kalumis. They're really cool. And it, uh, it actually speaks the the gospel message of the Bible. And so they can listen to it, and it has a light. So even if it's dark, they can sit there and, and kind of listen to Scripture. And so providing some of these things for the community um, and using those proceeds from the facility to, uh, to, to continue to grow and minister in different areas. Do you have a timeline on this? project um, it's, it sounds like a, it's a big deal and so how, what's your timeline yeah. right now we are in the kind of capital raising phase um still still tightening up a few of the the planning uh planning aspects but for the most part things are running running pretty well we've got a few commitments which is great already um and uh we're hoping to go back this next probably this next spring um to to kind of wrap up some things in country but the the agreements with the farmers, we already met with them, and they were absolutely on board uh, last time when we were in Liberia in October. They were just, I cannot tell you how excited they were. Actually, it's a long story. They gave us a chicken, which was really cool. It's a side story. We'll get to that uh, maybe another day. Um, <laughs> chicken's a big deal. We got a yeah. chicken. It was cool. It was a white chicken. It was a white chicken. Absolutely. White chicken. Purity. Not a cooked white chicken. This was a live chicken uh, that we got. And so um, the... The actual harvesting season, we would probably start at the end of the harvesting season, which would be next September, October, uh, is when we would actually start the first kind of purchasing of the cocoa. Linda is committed to helping the teachers in the village, so I asked her what she thought the impact of this business might be on the school. One of the things that um, I have done as a teacher is really see the um, the condition of the educational system there. It's just very, very, very weak. They have no supplies to speak of. The teaching um, opportunities for education of the teachers is very limited. Many of the, most of the teachers had no more than a sixth grade education themselves. Their teaching skills were were very primitive. Uh, teaching by rote. And it, it just made me so sad to know that the country has so many national re- natural resources, cocoa being only one of them, coffee, iron ore, diamonds, so many, rubber, and yet that money somehow or another is not, it's just not considered important enough to educate the children of these small villages so that that money will trickle down to the teachers. And there are many times the teachers would go to the, They'd have to take a half a day off, walk to the nearest village, which was 10 miles away, to try to pick up a paycheck, and the paycheck wasn't there. They just didn't have the money. And uh, so many of them aren't paid at all um, for teaching. And yet they're expected to teach the curriculum that the Liberian government gives them to teach, and they're expected to teach with no textbooks to speak of, no paper, uh, very few pencils. Um, They have to wear uniforms. Well, where are these villagers going to get the money for a uniform? But they can't. The children can't go to school without one. So, the idea of this uh, cocoa processing plant possibly being able to p- 
provide the, the village with a source of income for the teachers so that maybe they could have school a whole day instead of a half day. So the teachers wouldn't have to split their time between teaching in the morning and farming in the afternoon. Maybe they could even have school all day long if they could get enough money to do that. So that's one of the things that excites me. Another thing that excites me is what our church has done to become involved with this little village of Bansu with the Vacation Bible School kids collecting 3,000 books that took forever to get over there, but they are sitting in that library, the Mac and Patty Hanna Library. The, the library was built with funds from DBC. However, it was the villagers themselves that actually built the library, and that is by far and away the most sophisticated, well-built structure in the entire village. It actually has a concrete floor. It doesn't have a dirt floor. It actually has nice walls and tables and chairs that were built by the villagers. And all of those 3,000 books that were sent by our church are sitting on bookcases that were built by the villagers. So they have a, not only that, but there's this huge expanse of a meeting room where they can have meetings, where they can have higher education. We, we hope at some point to be able to have a generator that could provide electricity so that some of the people in the village could actually come and have educational training at, at night. So I see a lot of our involvement from our church is going has already gone a long way to increasing their um, standard of living and um, sharing God's love because they know that the reason we have invested in them is because that we love God and we want to share that with them. And that, that has become very obvious that they know that. You know, when we go out and do good deeds in the name of Jesus and speaking the name of Jesus as we do them, such as this cocoa processing facility, we don't just do it because it's a helpful thing to do. We don't do it to earn the right to share the gospel either. Jesus did not heal and feed people to earn the right to tell them about the kingdom of God. Sure, helping and healing will certainly make people curious and more open to what we have to share about spiritual things. But deeper than that, we do what we do as a demonstration that the kingdom has come. The way we live our lives is, is meant to be a demonstration that a new king is in town and the rules are now different. Projects like cocoa facilities are ways of saying that the kingdom has come and God's people are concerned about souls and bodies because God cares about both. It's also a way for followers of Jesus to see that their business skills, their teaching skills, their medical or other skills are, are not just for them to make money back home, but they can be mightily used by God to demonstrate the kingdom come. That'll do it for this episode of the Mission Life Podcast. If you found this conversation helpful, would you pass it along to someone you know? Maybe post it on your Facebook feed or send the link jeffreams.com slash 15. Check back soon as we post part two of this conversation where each of these will talk not about the business, but how this experience impacted them personally and what they learned from the librarians. Thanks for listening. <music>